Welcome to the Pre-Vet Podcast. I'm Alex Avellino, your tour guide on the journey to becoming a veterinarian. Listen along as we provide you with tips, tricks, and tales on applying to veterinary school. Welcome back to the Pre-Vet Podcast. I'm Alex Avellino. Just a reminder to our audience that season three is all taking place during social distancing, so the audio might sound a little bit different. I'd like to welcome to our podcast, Dr. Andrea Gentry-Apple, who is the coordinator for veterinary education and a clinical associate veterinarian at North Carolina A&T University, which is also a relief veterinarian. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, everybody, Alex. Thanks for having me. So happy to have you. You know, guys, my audience who's listening, sometimes I just like to ask people on the show because they're great and I know the conversation's going to be great. And that's what's going to happen today with Dr. Gentry Apple. So there's so many things we could start with, but I, I guess the first thing we usually start with with guests are how did you become a veterinarian? Starting with, start with undergrad. Okay. So... I'm gonna start a little bit before that, just because it kind of leads into undergrad. Sure. Um, so unlike most people, I was not that run of the mill. I've wanted to be a veterinarian since I was three. Um, however, when I got into high school, I realized that I really, really liked science. My mother is a nurse. I thought people, and I still think people are gross. And I wanted to do something in health. And I went to North Carolina a and I'm originally from Columbus, Ohio. So I said, you got to get out of the snow. And so I came further south, started majoring in animal science. And a and animal science program has always been very hands-on. And I got there, I got on the farm, and I loved it. I didn't want to leave. <laughs> I liked every bit of it. I was exhausted. I was tired. However, it was a challenge. And I loved it. And since then, I knew I wanted to go into something with animals, and that just kind of confirmed it. And so I went and did a couple different internships. Like the first summer after freshman year, I worked at my local humane society in Ohio, um, doing intake of animals into the facility. Um, and then the summer after my sophomore year, I actually did a program that no longer exists, which is so sad because it's such a great program called Vetward Bound at Michigan State. Pat Lowry. Was, oh, yes. Pat Lowry. Oh, my gosh. That woman is a genius. Yeah. Um, but it was an awesome program that really shaped the way I looked at veterinary medicine um, and kind of propelled me from there. So in undergrad, of course, I was your generic pre-vet student. I was part of the pre-vet club. I was in manners. And for those that don't know what manners is, minorities in agriculture, natural resources, and related sciences to ours, not to ends. Ours, not to ends. <laughs> Um, so I was in Manners. Uh, we had FFA at the time. I got involved in other organizations across campus. I was that run-of-the-mill, very active undergraduate student that was aiming to have as high grades as she possibly could because I was told getting into that school was darn near impossible. Yeah. And I had to have a 4.0 in order to get in. We had a program with NC State called Food Animal Scholars, which was awesome, that I applied to and got in my junior year. And that sort of like kind of saved my seat. Um, I didn't go anywhere. I finished my undergraduate degree. <laughs> but I knew I was in vet school before I applied, as long as I met the qualifications. Yeah. It, so let's, I get a lot of students ask me about that. 
Mm -hmm. Explain to me how they know that when you're a junior in college, how do they know that a student's ready to come to vet school? So this program, one focuses, well, the Food Animal Scholars Program focused on one students that are interested in food animal medicine. So if you wanted to do small animal or horses, this is not the program for you. Yeah. So you clearly had to show a dedication to food animal with your experience, your background and essays and grades. So you pretty much had to show your academic prowess um, prior to the application. And I had that. I mean, I graduated from undergrad with a 3.8 GPA. You know, I was, I was there academically. Um, the hardest part about those type of programs, especially this one, is your seat, although is guaranteed, so to speak, it can be revoked at any time. Ooh. So if, you, if I had a bad semester. Yeah gone. <laughs> well, I guess that's great because it makes a student accountable. Like just because they get a yes does not mean it's guaranteed. I like that. Definitely. So it makes you know that you ha you're still working for something. It's not, although they say, oh yeah, you're in, you haven't gotten an acceptance letter. You haven't gotten, you haven't received your seat with your deposit. Like you haven't done any of that. Okay. So it's kind of like, yes, you're in, but you're not really in. Okay. That makes sense. <laughs> So you still have to, like, we had to do summer experiences, like you had to have an internship related in food animal medicine, and all of the programs that I've seen similar to this one are almost the exact same. It's okay. set up to say, yes, you're in, congratulations, however, you still have to submit grades to us every semester, you still have to meet with your mentor and advisor, and if you don't meet the qualifications, we're sorry. sorry. Yeah but you knew what you were getting into when you signed up for the program. And then went to NC State for vet school. And I went to the home of the wolf pack <laughs> in Raleigh, North Carolina. <laughs> um, and was a food, uh, we have focus areas at NC State. So a food animal scholar and I was already a food animal track. Super active um, in diversity and inclusion efforts there. Um, voice president for a time, did loved internal medicine, hated surgery. <laughs> you know, I, you know, I did well, I enjoyed it. Then I graduated. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> we could talk about imposter syndrome now, you know, once you oh. graduate, what do you, do you remember when you felt like a veterinarian? Was there a moment? Was there a time when you're like, okay, I feel confident in my skills? I had a moment, I did my large animal internship at Tuskegee um, College of Veterinary Medicine, and I remember I had a moment in my internship, which was weird, where I was like, I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> I had a case that I was really fighting with, like it was, it was tearing up my brain it was complicated and all of a sudden I fell upon what it was. And I remember telling the clinician, I'm like, this is what it is. Like, this is the blood work. This is the test results. Like if you put all of these together, like it's a weird looking puzzle, but this is it. And they were like, no, it can't be it. Oh, and they came back. They came back the next day and he was like, I don't want to tell you that you're right when you're right. <laughs> I'm like, that's fine. Because I actually, it, it felt like, okay, I actually can do this. Because imposter syndrome, 
a lot of times we talk about it once you get the veterinary degree. However, imposter syndrome starts so much earlier than that. I had it in vet school, not so much in undergrad, but in vet school, it definitely reared its ugly head when I was there. And then, you know, just being a veterinarian in general, it rears its head. And then once you finally get comfortable and then you have to switch, you know, in careers, because my careers are a little bit different than most. Like when I have the switch in careers, you know, it rears its head every time you move. Yeah, for sure. And that would be, that would be challenging because when do you ever feel settled? You don't. You can. So I'm not saying that you can't feel settled in the profession. However, when I feel settled, I get bored mm-hmm. because it's no longer a challenge. And that's why I went into large animal medicine because I felt, you know, mostly just doing small animal medicine by itself, I would get complacent and I would get bored. And then I would end up getting bit. And I just, I just, that me being bit is not, I mean, no one wants to get bit. However, I learned very early on, I'd rather get kicked than bit any day out of the week. And I knew if I got bored with large animal, it's not like, oh, I'm just going to get bit. I could die, which is very drastic. Right. Very drastic. However, if I'm working on a bull that could be, you know, 1,800 pounds, I can't get bored, (laughs) you know, with 1800 pounds, you know, I have to be mindful of where I am and you know, what I'm doing and, or I could lose, you know, I could break my finger, you know, there's some serious bodily injury that can be ensued. And so that was a challenge for me, particularly being a female large animal was a challenge because all of my large animal mentors are all males. Yeah. That's a whole nother culture in large animals whole nother culture and it's still it's crazy although it's changing it's still crazy since we're talking about culture uh, can you talk about so you did a full year internship at tuskegee yep full year okay so then let's break this down so undergrad was at ant which is an hbcu it is school was at north carolina state which is a pwi so predominantly institution and then your internship was was at tuskegee which is an hbcu yep Talk to me about differences that you saw in culture. So students, just to, again to clarify if you're listening, so um, a, pred- a predominantly white institution means a school where most of the students are white. That's the majority. And then there's HBCUs, which is a historically black college and university. So, so you have minority serving institutions that get you. thrown in there too. Yeah. Yep. So talk to me about the differences that you noticed in culture, your experience. What was that like going from different schools and <laughs> settings? So I grew up, like I said, in Columbus, Ohio. And when I went from Carolina A&T, it was a culture shock because the high school that I went to was majorly white. And it was fine. Like we didn't have anything major, no major issues. But I went to HBCU and I was like, oh, wow. (laughs) I had actually never been around that many, you know, people of color at one time. And I was an imposter syndrome of am I black enough to be here? Which is crazy to think and say out loud. However, was, was very real. Um, Got comfortable in that setting, found my niche, joined a sorority, all that great stuff. And then I went to NC State. Culture shock. (laughs) Because I went from being around 
you know, hundreds of people that look like me and or other, you know, persons of color to going into a vet school where there were four African-American female class was one of them. Mm-hmm. And so in vet school, it was difficult because I stuck out more than I wanted to. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, a food animal person. So I was the only person of color <laughs> in the food animal side of things. Right. Um, and, and I was working on diversity issues at, you know, North Carolina State. So I was already, oh, this is the diversity chick who's kind of yeah. like, I don't want to be forcing diversity down everybody's throats. But, you know, constantly talking about, you know, why it's important. I was diversity chair for my class. Like it was all of the stereotypical roles that I was supposed to play. Um, and then to be honest, I went back to when I went to Tuskegee, I had some professors that asked, why are you going to Tuskegee? I was culturally exhausted. What culturally exhausted looked like. So I made that word up. I don't think that word I, I'm into it though. I know what you mean when you say it, but I want to hear what it means to you. Uh, I don't know, you know, that a phrase actually exists, but we're going to coin it here, yeah. here and now, culturally exhausted. Yeah. Um, I was tired of being the only one. I was tired of proving that I knew what I knew. And I was just tired of being the, like, I mean, to be honest, the only one. Mm-hmm. You know, I was food animal focused out of the group of us. I was the only minority and not to say that the group wasn't welcoming. They were, but there was always, it was always something. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, some of it was my own fault. I will admit. Cause it was, some of it was some of the biases that I was bringing on myself, mm-hmm. imposter syndromes and everything else. Uh, however, it just, I was, I was tired of talking about diversity. I was tired of having to be, you know, the one to answer questions to make sure that my professors realized that I was still there, that, you know, I knew the answer too, that I was smarter than what you thought I was. Uh, I just got tired. Yeah. It sounds like part of it. I wanted to take off the cultural responsibility and just focus on my education. Say, I mean, education by itself is, is exhausting. Yeah. And so when, especially for a person of color in veterinary medicine and going into vet schools, it's not just the educational piece. And some of it is what we bring upon ourselves. Like for me, I felt the cultural responsibility to talk about diversity and to make sure everyone knew it was important and to be that outward voice. And that was a responsibility that I took on to myself because there were other students in my class that said, you know what, I'm here for an education. That's it. Yes, it's important and I'll support you, but I'm not going to, you know, be the leader in this effort. And I just couldn't sit there and do that. And that's, you know, part of the reason why I got burnout in Tuskegee is a giant family. You know, everyone knows everybody who's graduated from Tuskegee, it seems like. And it reminded me of my undergrad experience. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to worry about the cultural aspects, the diversity aspects. I could just focus on the educational piece sure. and not and nothing else. Yeah. Let's shift into one of your roles, which is mentoring, advising, and teaching students. You teach students. Both you and I mentor students, right? Mm-hmm. And we get the students who are like, I want to go to this school because they're a top five school. Okay, so y'all can't see it because we're on a podcast, but Dr. Yeah, ben I'm Castle, we're rolling our eyes. A school being top, and I don't want to 
disparage top 10 schools because like UF and NC State are both top 10 schools. Yeah, so oh, definitely. obviously great. But y'all don't, we don't really focus on why they're ranked in that way. And it's based on like peer review. It's based on research dollars. So it's really important that you find the school where you're going to feel comfortable. Mm-hmm, definitely. 120%. And every time I hear a student say, well, I want to go to, you know, the number one vet school in the country. I, I laugh to myself and laugh to myself, not in front of the students because they're very serious normally when they say sure. this. Yes. However, I'm laughing to myself because it doesn't matter if you get a degree from the number one school or I think or 30 schools, 32 schools. I don't even know how many schools we have at this point because they keep popping up. Right. However, or the 32nd school or the 30th It doesn't school. matter. It's the exact same degree. Same degree. Except for if you go to U of Penn and you get a VMD and not a DVM, that is the only difference. Right. Right. A lot of times there's a meme and I'll have to share it with you. It's this cat inside of this cat carrier, but they've taken the box off of top, mm -hmm. taking the top off yeah. and the cat's just still sitting there, but like the cage door is still in front of it. Uh -huh. And it's like sometimes the solution just is, is uh -huh. not in front of you. It's maybe above you or to the oh. side. And so, so many times we get stuck yes. in a tunnel vision of, I have to go here, or I have to do this, or right. I have to have that. Yeah. And I say, well, there's, you know, there's more than one way to get into vet school. There is a, there's not a gold standard for no. veterinary applications. Like that doesn't, that doesn't exist. Right. Exactly. It's how you highlight yourself and how you talk about yourself that really is going to make that stand out to that admissions committee yep. and so many students were saying well I gotta go to the top school because that's gonna look better on future applications or they just want the name right like, you just want to be able to say you know I'm Dr. Gentry Apple and I graduated from NC State nobody cares no, not a single one nobody cares and not a single one it's, I I don't think I really understood that until my late 20s and now I'm in my 30s but if you had told me when I was 19 years old that name brands those kind of things don't matter I couldn't have heard you say it but now I know it's true and I'll tell you guys I I advise literally thousands of students and I've never had a student come back to me after they go to another vet school and they're like I hated it I should have gone to my favorite school the ones they're just glad they got the degree mm -hmm. so just Get the degree. Don't worry about all of the bells and whistles. Those things don't matter. You know what's the only thing I would look at if I was a vet student? Hmm. Tuition. That's the only thing I would be looking at because that does make a difference. So if oh. you're paying some of the different, the differences between the least expensive schools and the most expensive school is more than $200,000 difference. It's insane. It's insane. So that's something, I, if it were me and I were a vet student, I would put off going to vet school two or three years until I got a better tuition and maybe location. Like you could not pay me to go to some of the Northern schools because I don't do snow anymore. So <laughs> I, I would have been like you, done with the snow. Those are the only two things because even culture, like you said, culture depends on the students that are there. Yep. And yes, leadership makes a huge difference. But if you find a nice group of friends if the rest of your class is a hot mess, that's okay. Yep. As long as you have some people. Oh yeah, definitely. So you mentioned your love of large animals and food animals specifically. Yes. 
I hear mostly from small, like, so being a food animal and a, and a woman, uh, a female food animal veterinarian makes me a minority. And I, so I often hear from small animal people, why do you love the food animals? Like, what is it about food animal medicine that you love? For me, it's a challenge. Um, and also it's the relationships I'm able to build with farmers. So when I was down in Tuskegee, there was a project called the West Alabama Herd Health Project, which I loved. So West, the Western part of Alabama um, is lacking in veterinary services for particularly a lot of minority farmers. And so, but through this project, we would go out to the Western part of the state, because it's about three hours from the East to the West. Um, and we would go out and spend two days and just hit pretty much farms that extension agents would find for us. So we'd vaccinate, deworm, preg check, castrate, and they were very long days. However, it was fun. I enjoyed the challenge. Um, I'm also, my head is about as hard as concrete. So being told that I can't do something tells me that I can do something. I hear, I, I hear the opposite in my head. So having the challenge of an animal that is larger than me really just, you know, challenged me to want to learn how to be able to safely manipulate these animals for their overall health and my overall well-being. Um, but I love the relationship with the farmers. I love the fact that I'm helping with a livelihood because a lot of these farmers get a bad rap a lot of times because they have animals and how could you raise animals for food production? Like that's so cruel and so mean, but these farmers actually put a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of passion into raising quality products mm -hmm. for us to be able to eat. Cause I mean, as we know, the United States, we're not just raising food for the United States, we're raising food for the world. Yeah. <laughs> so being able to impact that is something that always drove home for me. Um, as well as ruminants in general, particularly, you know, sheep, goats, and cattle, are their medicine's just different. And I liked it. Um, and I still love it and still enjoy it. And I, like I said, the farmers are pretty much the, the strongest piece to that. Um, I do, I still do large or small animal stuff now more so than anything else, because I ended up messing up my rotator cuff palpating. <laughs> oh, oh, ow. So, they don't talk about the injuries in large animal, but I messed up a rotator cuff while palpating. Nothing serious or major, however, and I still can palpate and I still do palpate. However, I kind of said, hmm, let me think about this longevity wise. Yeah. Let me, you know, go back and make sure I can still brush up and vaccinate some cats and dogs every once in a while because that's gonna be a little bit more long term. And do those vet clinics just call you up and say, hey, we need you this weekend? Like what does that look like? So in relief practice is what I do. I actually do relief pretty much is for a corporate practice. And so I pretty much pick my schedule, which I absolutely love. Yeah. <laughs> I tell them, hey, I'm available on these days. Could you use me? And they're like, yeah, definitely. We'll use you for all of these days. So it's, it's one of those things where I get the best of both worlds. So everyone's like, well, you can't have your cake and eat it too. And I beg to differ when it comes to my career, because I definitely feel as though I have my cake and I can eat it at the same time. Yeah. Let's break that down for yeah. vet students. So how do you, like, how do you manage your time? How do you wear different hats? How do you feel settled or comfortable in each role from being an administrator for mentoring vet students, pre-vet mm -hmm. students, for being the lecturer and teacher, the professor, the, 
you know, veterinarian, like how, how does that work in your life? And what advice do you have for students who are also trying to manage a lot of hats? So with managing hats, we have to understand there's no such thing as giving 120%. Like everyone's like, oh, I can get, I'm getting over 100%. There's no such thing. <laughs> you only can give 100% at any given time. I've also had to realize that multitasking isn't effective. Yeah. And I learned that the hard way. Oh. <laughs> so I've learned to recognize what I need to do to be happy. I hear so many veterinarians and I have classmates that are burnt out because they've been in practice for the past five years. And I've heard vets discourage vet students and pre-vet students from going into the profession, which to me is insane, but it's just because they've gotten stuck. And yeah. so for me, I found a niche. So I'm like, okay, I enjoy teaching, although I will say that my students can drive me absolutely insane sometimes. And I'm yeah. sure, I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's definitely reciprocated. I'm sure I absolutely. drive you crazy. Yep, absolutely. Just as much. Um, however, I found this niche of I can teach and mentor pre-vet students and help them with their career paths. However, when I'm feeling overwhelmed in that scenario, I'm not being as effective as I'd like to be, which means I need to take a step back. Yes. <laughs> because I'm no longer understanding where the student is coming from. And that's yeah. when I'm able to go into practice. Yeah. So I manage my time effectively. I make sure that, you know, my main job is at North Carolina A&T. They are the ones that are, you know, paying me to be that professor and mentor, you know, 12 months a year, five days a week, you know, and I make sure those responsibilities are all taken care of. And so a lot of my relief and practice work may come on the weekends. However, I'm also a wife <laughs> and I also have a family. And so I have to be able to balance that as well. And so that comes with communication. Mm, you know, we wow. also have friends, like my friends want to see me. Yes. So I'm not necessarily going in to burn myself out. I'm going in just to say, all right, this is a break from it all. I'm really good at finding a balance. Like I have no problem saying I can't and I have to take a break. So I'm, I build that into my schedule. I know if I'm doing five, if I'm meeting with five students in a row, I'm going to need a break after that. And I build it in. I meet a lot of veterinary students and veterinarians and pre-vet students who aren't, who feel like they can't say no and aren't comfortable building in that break. And like mm -hmm. you said, everybody's different. So I'm wondering and you meet with a lot of students too, like what can we tell those students? Of course we can tell them till we're blue in the face, like you have to do this if you wanna be successful. Yeah. But what, what are some things we, some actual strategies we could give them to do it? So one that I had in vet school is I always had a day off. So my, I was, and that's a Tibet student that's like, wait, what? a day right. off. Right. Um, so as we know, vet school is Monday through Friday, classes, labs, etc. But Friday afternoon and Friday night was mine. Okay. I didn't pick up a book, note, lecture. <laughs> um, I didn't pick up anything Friday at all. So when I came home from school, it was drop my book bag in my room or drop my bag in my room. I'd go to dinner, hang out with friends. If we wanted to go out and have a good time, we'd go do that. Or if I just wanted to lay in my bed with popcorn and M&Ms, I was going to do that. 
and that was just kind of like my break period and for yeah. a lot of times yeah. with weeks where I was extremely overwhelmed in my mind is I just have to get to Friday right something to look forward like, to because if you think that trying to push through now pushing through does come in and is helpful in certain situations sure. right? um, however if you have an opportunity to take a break take it if you're feeling overwhelmed if you're feeling outrageous stressed if you feel like you're on a break of a nervous breakdown you are not doing yourself a, fa a favor you are not doing anyone else a favor you are not doing your grades a favor by pushing through right many times we've been taught to cram 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 it doesn't work long term i will say it doesn't work because we've all crammed for that test we've all right. crammed for the quiz we've all you know crammed a paper in one night we've all done it and we've gotten good grades however long term it does not work mm -hmm. and if you can find a strategy now as a veterinary student or as a pre-vet student for a schedule that works for you that you can take into veterinary program or into your professional program now, mm -hmm. you will be a thousand times better than so many veterinarians that are dealing with burnout because right. they can't say no. Right. And so, and learning how to say no will set you free. I, I admit I have an issue with saying no, particularly when it comes to students. However, I manage that time to sit there and say, okay, I'm going to do this. However, where is it going to fit? Yeah. When can I take the time? But you've got to learn how to handle all of that now. And then have your days. Have, whether I used to have like an hour after school, after vet school, you know, every day where either I would cook or I would go to the grocery store, I would go work out, I may go to the pool for an hour. You know, it just it was a time for him to come down off of classes before I go into study mode. <laughs> Absolutely. Working and waiting. Yes. You have to. You have to. I actually used to use gummy bears like on my notes. So like if I would go and read stuff and then I get to a gummy bear, that was a break. <laughs> oh, I love that. That's so fun. But then there was also those times during finals where it was like, screw the gummy bear method. I'm just going to eat all of the gummy bears because <laughs> I just have to get to the end of this week for finals because vet school finals are not for the lighthearted. Right. Sometimes it's about survival. And anytime mm -hmm. we can build in that thriving gummy bear no time, we should. I think that's so fun that you did gummy bears. That's really fun. Um, okay, well, pre-vet students, I feel like we've talked about a lot about understanding different pathways to veterinary medicine, how to manage those pathways once you take on like three of them, like Dr. Gentry Apple has. We've talked about culture, imposter syndrome. We've talked about, you know, small animals, large animals. We talked about a lot of things. I'm really glad you gave them that tip about, you know, working in waves, taking breaks, um, not pushing, 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 because it's not sustainable. So thank you for your wisdom and advice and time today, Dr. Gentry Apple. Of course. I, I mean, the thing is, like, especially in this profession, you know, we all have to understand that we're a lifelong learner. I'm still learning. <laughs> Just like I know, Alex, you're still learning. Like, we're all still learning how to navigate this crazy thing we call life and whatever profession you decide to go into. But how we have to figure out how to survive it. Like, we, we, it's unfortunate that you get into a profession and then almost dread the profession. And that's what I'm really trying to get students to understand is you don't have to dread the profession. Like, you have to set your boundaries, find your niche. 
figure out what works for you and what works for you isn't going to work for me. What works for me is not going to work for you. And you just have to find that ground and be able to make it your own. Veterinary medicine is way too broad and too diverse in order for you to feel stuck. There's always another avenue. There's always another opportunity that we all can take advantage of. Amen. 100% agree. Well, thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. I'm Alex Avlino, and we'll talk to you soon.